I'm Father Mitch Packer, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition. And we are especially focusing on how to meditate on the Gospels in this part of the series. So we'd love to have you be part of the show. You can do so by adding your questions or comments, calling in during the live show. In North America, you call one 800 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can call country code 1, area code 205, 271-2980. Of course, you can send us your questions or comments via email by writing to scriptureandtradition at EWTN.com or you can follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, last week we started looking at a new book that, uh, that I wrote called Praying the Gospels, uh, Jesus Launches His Ministry. And in this, uh, by the way, you can get this book at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52687. And this is um, a, a series of meditations on various aspects of the Gospels. And by launching his mission, I'm talking about where our Lord begins his public ministry. So we will now continue where we left off last week, which is with the baptism of Jesus episode. Now this is in Matthew. I mean, the, the Lord's baptism is covered in the other Gospels too. But we're looking at the version in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's Matthew 3, verses 1 through 17. Now, this second meditation that I'd like us to look at is about our Lord's journey to the Jordan River. This is the second meditation. And it's just on... Matthew 3.13, just one verse. Remember, I've said many times, especially when we were going through uh, the, the book that's the basis for this, uh, How to Listen When God is Speaking. I talked often how Scripture is like a box of really fine Belgian chocolates or maybe some other chocolates as well. And you need to savor them. So we're going to take just this one verse for this uh, second meditation on the baptism. This verse reads, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So this is a very important thing. Now, first of all, the last mention that St. Matthew had made of any dwelling was that the Lord had uh, returned to, uh, from Egypt to Galilee. You see that in Matthew chapter 2, 
verses 22 to 23. And this is when <coughs> he, that is St. Joseph, heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. number of things going on here. Um, just in, in that uh, verse, uh, Herod Archelaus was the son of Herod the Great. He was not any better than his father, that's for sure. Matter of fact, um, most of the Herod crowd was a pretty rough family, uh, not nice people. And uh, Archelaus eventually got removed from office after just a few short years because of his gross incompetence, and he was replaced with a Roman procurator, which we'll later on we'll see is uh, Pontius Pilate some years uh, after this. So they hear that Archelaus is ruling in Judea because the Romans had divided up Herod's kingdom. Uh, Archelaus ruled in uh, Jerusalem. Antipas ruled up in Galilee. And then up in the farther north, north of the Sea of Galilee, you had his, their brother Philip. Uh, but they removed Archelaus. But St. Joseph figured that it was much safer to go to Galilee than to return to Judea. And uh, by the way, th this phrase that he shall be called a Nazarene, this comes from the prophet Isaiah chapter 11. And the word, uh, the, the, the verse there says, a root shall spring from the, or, or excuse me, a shoot shall spring from the stump of Jesse. What's, what does that mean? The Lord had promised to cut down the family tree of Jesse, David's family and send, send them off into exile. But even with that threat of punishment of the David family for their gross misconduct, we still see that he promises a shoot will come out of the stump. Now this is based on local vegetation, that olive, olive trees in particular can be cut down to the stump, the bottom of the stump, but a new shoot will grow out of it and eventually develop into a, a whole new branch of the same tree. That's why, in fact, there are still eight trees in the Garden of Gethsemane that have root systems that are 2,500 years old. That means that even at the time of Christ, they were already 500 years old. And new, from new shoots came these trees. If you ever see photographs, you can look it up on the internet. 
and see photographs of the Garden of Gethsemane and see those new big trees, and they're very old. And those trees still give olives. I was blessed once that the Franciscans gave me a rosary made out of pits from the olives in those eight trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's very much an honor for me. And this, uh, they, they don't, they, they, they saved them for special occasions and they were very kind to share that with me. But that's the shoot that they're talking about. It can grow into a whole new tree. Now the word for shoot in Hebrew is netzer. So to say that Christ it will be called a Nazarene, they don't use the exact word Nazarene, but Christ is that shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. So from David's family, Christ comes. And that's and the town, Nazareth, we say Nazareth. In Hebrew, it is pronounced Nutzeret. Nutzeret. The word Nutzeret comes from that root Netzer. And it was apparently named after that verse in Isaiah. That is one of the things that the people living in Nazareth had this hope that God would bring a new shoot from the stump of Jesse. So they named themselves after the shoot, Nutzeret. And Jesus, Hanotzri, that's how you say Nazarene in Hebrew, Hanotzri, is that shoot. That's what's going on there. This is one of the reasons that we enter into studying more deeply what the scriptures mean. Now, what we have is that from the time of their return from Egypt, so anywhere from about age two or three, all the maybe four, all the way until he's about 30. He's living in Nazareth. The only other thing we know about Christ in that time comes from the Gospel of St. Luke when our Lord gets lost in the temple at age 12. And then from 12 to 30, there's nothing. Now, this is, you know, a couple of decades, almost three decades, in which we don't have anything recorded about Christ. And this uh, is something that is dealt with in a variety of ways. You have a number of very late books from the 4th and 5th century that claim to be Gospels of our Lord's infancy. These were written very late. They are not based on anything in the gospel, and they make our Lord look rather silly. For instance, he's making clay pigeons, then he breathes on them and makes them fly. That's not 
the kind of miracle our Lord did. This is the kind of miracle you might expect from the fables of the Gentiles and the fables of the pagans. But that's not something we believe. Or another one has a bunch of roughnecks, you know, running through the streets of Nazareth and they knock baby Jesus down. You know, well, toddler Jesus. Knock him down. He gets mad and strikes him all dead. And then St. Joseph has to come along and say, I told you not to do that. You raise those kids back up to life. No, 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 no. This is, this is not anything to do with our Lord. This is somebody's pure fantasy. We also, besides those late Gospels, we also have these various uh, folks who have visions of our Lord's growing up or locutions and different kinds of uh, messages. And they describe him growing up. Some of these are piously written, like Mary Vigreda and Catherine Emmerich and, and so on. Um, but, you know, there, there's no way to back it up. And it's not sacred scripture and it cannot be put on that level at all you cannot equate them with scripture that would be a grave temptation in fact some of these books get condemned uh, poem of the man god by Marie Valtorta uh, was uh, condemned uh, when, it, when it came out. It was ordered not to be printed, and then later on when they printed anyway, it was put on the index of forbidden books. Now the index was suppressed, to be sure. But I know a lot of people read that stuff. And these, you know, are not considered uh, anything that is, you know, from, you know, directly revealed by God or dictated by the Blessed Mother or by our Lord, anything that these are from the imagination of these people. And perhaps, you know, a very vivid imagination, but it's not Scripture. And it's not equal to Scripture. It's not on a par with the Bible. Make that really clear. Uh, as interesting as it might be to read some of these and get that kind of picture. You also have a lot of people in the New Age movement who try to come up with all sorts of theories of what Jesus was doing in those years of the hidden life. I have read a number of them as well. And... I've seen you know, how they come up with stories. He went to Egypt and learned the magic Egyptian priests. He went to Tibet and learned Tibetan Buddhism. And that's where he learned how to do miracles from the Egyptian priests or from the Tibetan Buddhists or from Hindus, all sorts of things. And he, he learned how to be a yogi, all this kind of stuff. However... None of these things are true. They're, they're, that's just made up. And there's nothing to back such st stories up. Now, we see in these various episodes, and what's going on here? 
people are oftentimes trying to simplify our Lord Jesus. Some of the stories, especially those from the uh, 4th and 5th centuries, were trying to say, well, Jesus is so powerfully God that he could make a clay pigeon fly. Others try to say, no, he's so human, he had to learn the secrets of Tibet and India and Egypt or wherever else they have him go in these journeys. And this is something that we have to say, stay with the gospel. Stay with the gospel. Jesus is God made man. Jesus is God who took on human flesh. And he truly is human and he's truly divine. Maintain that without having to make up any kind of uh, other things. I think we do much better to consider something that that the great uh, and venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen had said that our Lord spent 30 years obeying his human parents. You see that in Luke 2, verse 51. Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. He spent 30 years being obedient to his parents. He spent three years teaching, teaching his disciples, which will begin after this period of the baptism and then the uh, temptation. And then he spent three hours redeeming the world. Now, what I like about Archbishop Sheen's perspective is that the most important action of Christ is the redemption on the cross, that he died for us. And that only took three hours, but a painful three hours it was and an intense pain. He spent only three hours, excuse me, spent three years teaching. A lot of people want to reduce Jesus to some sort of a teacher. And he did teach. Very much so, but only for three years. But the 30 years of obedience is what he did. And this is something for us to keep in mind as to who Christ is. It's a quiet time of obedience, learning how to be a carpenter and loving his parents his foster father Joseph, and his mother Mary. And this is something for us to, that's where I'd like us to start. Instead of trying to come up with manufactured notions of what his youth would have been like, we begin with that ordinariness of his life in Nazareth, a small, small town of maybe 200-some people where he knows everybody, everybody knows him. This is where he begins. And what we'll do is come back and take a look at what that might mean in terms of our own meditation. Please stay with us.
uh, welcome back. And we're taking a look at just one verse, the uh, Matthew 3.13, where Jesus leaves Galilee and goes down to the Jordan to John in order to be baptized. I'm using this as a way to reflect on his hidden life and what it means, what it means for us. Now, one of the things that's very important is to consider the way a lot of people in our society would balk from such a life. Not all, by any means, but a lot of people. They try to be, imagine themselves becoming famous and wealthy, and they think that being well-known will give them more friends, or being rich will give them more importance, make, somehow make their lives better. But I would urge you to go back to many of the um, various rock and roll stars, just as an example, some of whom became very, very wealthy. Take a look at their lives. Pay attention to how short so many of them were and take a look at why. But examine that on your own. See what I mean? A lot of people lament that their lives are boring and that they blame their circumstances for the boredom. Their parents didn't give them the right love, the right opportunities, the right, they didn't get the right schools, they couldn't find the right jobs. Um, people didn't recognize their natural talent and ability. And they want to be shot into sudden fame by having this great talent and nobody just recognizes me. And you see that with so many tens of thousands of people who try to get into professional sports when there's only a few spots there or get into uh, various forms of the entertainment industry. Again, where there are only so many slots. And they become very disappointed. A lot of people try to find ways to make themselves look unique. They, they don't accept their own uniqueness the way they are. They try to make themselves unique. They various unnatural hair colors, um, body piercings, tattoos, coming up with all kinds of unusual names, unusual spellings for names. Um, the, the problem being that uh, you have to explain every time how your name is spelled. And uh, even if it sounds simple, it probably isn't. And then you also have to take a look at uh, how so many people with tattoos and piercings kind of look like everybody else with tattoos and piercings. I haven't been too impressed by how distinctive they make one look. Well, if you look very carefully, I guess. Um, another thing that I am very concerned about is the way people try to record a lot of embarrassing, oftentimes very shameful behaviors, pain-filled events, violent events and acts, uh, and they put it on the internet and various websites on their very Facebook and all these other things. 
And for a lot of people, their one hope in life is to be able to have a crack at fame, to, to go viral. Uh, there was a, <laughs> a cute little video. Sometimes these, are, these do go viral of a little boy that looked like four or five, you know, dressing up in a very nice suit and being very polite to a little girl his age that he was giving his valentines to. And that was cute. But to, to try to do nasty things in order to become viral um, is, is not good. And, and even if you get on to some of these television shows that broadcast, they don't they don't broadcast this with empathy for you. They make fun of you for being so dumb. And they, they have no concern for your shame, your embarrassment, or your physical pain. I, I don't see the point here. This is far from the way Christ acted. Very far. And this is something we can take a look at. First of all, it's worth it for us to note. For those first 30 years, our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, made, made flesh, obeyed his two holy parents. He did the things his mother asked him. He learned from her. He spoke with their accent. And, you know, he... he learned St. Joseph's trade, became known as a carpenter in Nazareth, like Joseph. They probably both worked on the city of Sepphoris, which is just a mile and a half away. Uh, it had been burned down by some rebels, and so they were probably working to fix it up again. And when we think about Jesus leaving this home to begin his public ministry, we can, one reflection we can have is to be able to accept our own early lives. You know, when we were young, uh, uh, probably for most of us a fairly hidden time unless you become a child star. And I don't recommend that so easily either. I, um, one of the kids I looked up to when I was a little boy was on the Danny Thomas show and I was so sad to find out that he ended up shooting himself. You know, that, that makes me very, very sad. Um, you know, no, most of us have a quiet home and part of our lives is to be like Christ, accepting that hiddenness of the way we grew up with parents who love us. That's very important. And again, parents grow up doing these hidden things because they love their children. And we can ask for a grace to accept that hidden quality of our youth, of our growing up, more humbly and not try to have some sort of great fame. Um, it's a grace to be able to say, I'm not going to complain about the boredom. I have tasks that I have to accomplish, school and learning various skills, like our Lord had to learn from St. Joseph. 
We also want to turn away from the temptation to pride um, that, that comes when we try to expose ourselves in order to go viral. We want to turn away from that kind of pride uh, and do foolish things. Now, here's something that I recommend as a meditation uh, in this regard. Try to imagine our Lord walking from Nazareth to the Jordan Valley, down towards Jericho. I've ridden that on, a, on buses and cars many, many times. I've got very clear pictures in my mind of that route. And use your own imagination. You'll be walking down. Nazareth is up on a hill, you know, a good, good-sized ridge. Then you walk down to the Jezreel Valley, which is very flat, and sloping down towards the, very gently sloping towards the Jordan Valley. And then you walk along the Jordan Valley, which is water right in one area with some vegetation, but then otherwise kind of desert, fairly brown. And try to picture that he walks all the way down to a place about two miles or so from, mile and a half from Jericho. And about 75 miles that he walked uh, alone. And imagine that you are walking with Christ on this journey. And you share with him the truth about your own life. Share with him the quiet ways that you lived with your family. And then think about how would he describe the Blessed Mother? or St. Joseph, how would he describe his memories of growing up in their home? How would he describe the ways that he uh, lived with neighbors and the, the selfless love that they were shown in various ways? What would he share about the way his family life shared, uh, you know, during the you know, uh, their love for him, and what insight did he get about human nature? Remember he said, I know what's in human hearts. And then, after imagining how Jesus might describe to you his growing up, then share with Christ about your family. What would it be like to describe the way your parents loved you. And this is something that, you know, that your brothers, your sisters, your neighbors, how did they affect you? You might want to talk to him about various ways in which there's hurt and pain in your family, sometimes absence, sometimes divorce, sometimes abandonment, sometimes other pain, even abuse, the physical and other kinds of abuse. Ways in which there have been addictions to alcohol and drugs. Ways that kept members of the family from loving us. And maybe in some cases parents were not there. Talk to him about that. What would you say to Christ about your family? And speak also then of yourself your own temptations to pride, 
your rebellion against your own parents and how they raised you. Some of your legitimate requests and demands, some that were not. Some desires to develop gifts that you didn't do but, or couldn't. And as you talk to him, the, the, the key of this would be to ask our Lord to help you integrate the truth about the way you grew up, about the, the truth about your family, the truth about your friends and your weaknesses in your own life. Talk to him like you would a friend to a friend. And then consider how our Lord would call his disciples from similar kinds of simple backgrounds and how he would affirm them and correct them, just as he does with me. And then after you finish that meditation, take time and just end with an Our Father. Take that time to be with our Lord on that meditation and see what you can learn about your relationship with Jesus as you relate to him going from his hidden life in Nazareth to uh, begin the public life. Next week, we'll continue on with Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, and our Lord's baptism. So we'll get back to that next week. What I'd like to do today is start with a call. We have Alvin on the line. Alvin, where are you calling from? I'm in New York. New York, great. And what can we do for you today? Uh, we are confused uh, about the teachings of some of the priests, or most of the priests are saying that God has nothing to do with this virus or pandemic. Yet, mm -hmm. as we know from the Bible, God was instrumental in the plague during the time of Moses mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and during the time of Adam and Noah's Ark, he was there too. And I mean, also Sodom and Gomorrah and all. The Holy Trinity of God himself was there. Mm -hmm. Now, we're teaching them different and now that it has nothing to do. I mean, we're confused. A lot of the Catholics are confused and they're getting out of our religion because we don't know what they're talking about now. Mm -hmm. Isn't it a fact that we want our faithful to practice the virtue of uh, fear of the Lord? There is a virtue of fear of the Lord. Mm -hmm. It should instill in sure. their hearts to fear the Lord. So they'll continue to stay with us. Sure. Alvin, let me respond. I think there are probably a couple of things going on, okay? One, I suspect that the, the, what the priests are saying, it's good to ask them about this, good to ask them about this, but what the priests I suspect are saying is be careful not to say that the Lord is picking certain people to get COVID because they were bigger sinners than others. That's one of the things I think they, they, they want us to avoid. And I would agree with that 100 percent. 
You can't say that well, this person got it and died because of their sins and this person didn't get it because they're so virtuous. We don't want to be simplistic about such things. We don't know. Secondly, we have to then take a look. Is the, this pandemic as a whole a punishment from God? I think we have to be somewhat cautious about that. We are too close to the situation to be able to say there are a number of things happening. One, there, you know, the evidence increasingly indicates and has been indicating that this was a human designed virus. This is not something that occurred in nature. And B, that human, at the very least, human incompetence let it out by accident, perhaps, or it could be that somebody let it out on purpose. And that would be more of a case of human sin and carelessness than it would be God's willing to punish everybody. Now, there's also been a combination, as we've gone through this, a combination of false information about it and true information. And sometimes it's been um, this incompetence, again, and sometimes it's been people trying to cover their own tracks, and at other times it's been folks using this for political purpose. There, I don't see any way around that. And in that case, again, you're dealing with people doing, uh, breaking the Eighth Commandment about false witness. So, for instance, we were told by government voices, uh, you don't need to wear masks. It's not going to help. And the reason they later on they admitted, well, we said that because we didn't want people to buy all the masks and there wouldn't be enough for the people in the hospitals. They lied. That was a lie. That was false witness and a sin against the Eighth Commandment. And then they started to say everybody has to make, has to wear masks and all kinds, and we have to lock down. And again, we'll, we'll wait and see how much of this had to do with politics and how much of this had to do with the best they figured out. But, you know, these have been some of the problems. I think we have to go into saying, not saying God has nothing to do with it. That's, that's not true. That's not true. This has been a situation where some people, out of love of God, served others and risked their own health and their own lives. There are others 
who tried to use this for financial gain, for political gain, and to protect them, their own background. There's a mixture of sin and virtue, and God is very much involved in those aspects. He calls us to the virtue, and He condemns the sinful ways that people may have used the pandemic. And for those who seem to have been involved in helping to create this, perhaps as a weapon, you know, they, they talk about these biological weapons that exist and that go various governments have available to them, including our own. And, you know, that very much has to do with their being answerable to God. So I would not say that God has nothing to do with this. No, that's, that's a grave mistake. But it would also be a big mistake to say the people who get this disease are at fault and they deserve it. And the ones who don't get it don't deserve it. That's, that's just not true. That would be a false understanding of what, uh, uh, what our Lord is doing with this. But those who tell lies for their own personal gain with using this pandemic or create the pandemic, well, they'll answer to God for grave sin. And for those who helped the least of their brethren, the Lord God will reward them and say to them, come enter into my Father's kingdom. And those who allowed others to die, you know, the awful thing in your state of New York where they put people who were sick into the nursing homes and then they died. the elderly people died because they were the most susceptible. That has to be examined not only by the law, but looked at from the perspective of how they obey God's commandments. So these are some of the areas. Go into this with a scalpel, not with a club and try to take this situation reflectively apart so we can understand it better. I'm going to take a little break. We'll come back with more of your phone calls. I know we have some and some of your emails, so please stay with us. Have another caller on the line. Anne, where are you calling from? New York. New York. Thank you. Uh, what can we do for you today? Well, I have a friend who has been in a same-sex relationship for over 10 years, mm -hmm. and they truly love each other. Mm -hmm. 
they go to Mass every Sunday mm-hmm. and receive Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. Now, I have said that I believe that they should not be receiving Holy Communion, mm-hmm. uh, but they said that they have spoken to a priest, to, to more than one, in fact, and the priest has said it's okay. So also, my friend says to me that Christ has never said homosexual relationships are sinful. Okay, so your question is? Uh, which scripture passages could I refer them to? Okay, couple things. A, this person is correct. Christ never said homosexual relations are bad. It's not in the Gospels. And there's a reason for that. First of all, the word homosexual and homosexuality uh, didn't exist in his day. Uh, Those are terms that were developed in the late 1800s AD. This comes more from the influence of psychologists who were dealing with these issues. And so there's, there's that. Secondly, secondly, our Lord you know, didn't criticize uh, bad driving, did he? You don't see uh, our Lord say, blessed are those who stay in their own lane and don't run people off the road. No, that wasn't an issue for them. And my point in mentioning that is a lot of times our Lord does not tell people about sins that are not part of the problem in their culture. In ancient Israel, they knew from the book of Leviticus that there's a, there's a, a strong condemnation of uh, men having sexual relations with each other. Uh, it says that you shall not, uh, a man shall not lie with another man like with a woman. And it just was not an issue in his culture. They took that commandment very seriously and they didn't do it. But what we do see is that when the apostles and the disciples go to the rest of the Mediterranean world, then they have to address the issue. So, for instance, St. Paul writes about it most uh, explicitly in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6. And then also, more clearly, in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 and following. So this is something that uh, is very, very clear with uh, saying that you can't have uh, same-sex relations. And again, they didn't have to deal with it until they went to the Greek and Roman world where it was something that was more part of the culture. So... That's where I would go. Romans 1 and then also in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 6 through 9, 
we list the numbers. It, it's also true that uh, it condemns you know, uh, adultery and fornication, sex outside of marriage among heterosexuals. It's not that it's picking on you know, homosexuals. It's just saying that uh, these sexual behaviors are not acceptable morally. And as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 6 through 9, that such people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's, and, and that's not about the folks who have that desire. There are people who struggle with that desire. And, and this is something else too that's very important to keep in mind. There are men who need the acceptance and affection of men, but without it becoming something that is sexualized. That's a different thing. To, to, that they love, to, to, this couple you mentioned, that they love each other is very good, that they should love each other. That's very, um, a blessing. And they need that male affection. But there's also where moving into the sexual realm that, you know, and sexualizing that becomes the, the area of sin. Okay? Does that help, Anne? I think she's gone. All right, we'll take an email. From Ray. Father Mitch, I've never gotten a satisfactory answer in various Bible studies I've attended about the passage in Genesis 22, 1 through 18, where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Since God is a loving God, I cannot believe he would make such a request and that Abraham, a loving father, would proceed to carry it out without any argument or objection. As a father... I would have a lot of questions. After this event, Isaac would certainly be suspicious of Abraham and God. Every answer I've heard has always been rationalization that's just a test, and God wouldn't allow Isaac to be sacrificed. However, Abraham and Isaac didn't know that. Ray. Well, Ray, they didn't know that. And in fact, you know, because they didn't know it, that is the testing quality, and it says in the text that this was a test. However, keep this in mind. It was not unusual in the Near East for families to sacrifice their oldest sons. We've seen that depicted. In Egypt, they didn't do that. And I don't think they did it in Babylon. But in the area called the Levant, uh, the, the coastal area along the eastern Mediterranean. This was not unusual, especially with infants, but also with older sons. Uh, the, the king of Ekron, I think it is, is shown sacrificing his oldest son, holding him by his ankles to drop him over the city wall and kill him, um, you know, as, as a sacrifice. Um, this w was part of their culture, and this needs to be seen in light of that culture, where it was an accepted cultural uh, uh, expectation that you might sacrifice your son. So that's why Abraham would go along with it. But the stopping of it also became a way by having that test and then stopping it, it becomes 
of a way to also teach very emphatically that you may not sacrifice your sons. Later on, after the Exodus, they offer a lamb in place of their son or a couple of turtle doves at their presentation in the temple. But they may not do human sacrifice. God forbids it. And this was how he brings up the issue, tests Abraham, and says, no, this cannot be. So that's one of the other things going on. Just also note about the trust of Isaac for his father. He never speaks to Abraham again in the rest of the book of Genesis. Pay attention to that, too. All right, tomorrow night we'll be talking with Joe Griesbauer about his apostolate. And may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, uh, we ask you to keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills as well. God bless you all and for your support of this program and all the other shows that we do. Thank you.